Whether you're looking to build a website for your business, your hobby, your podcast, or just for fun, Pair Networks is your go-to web hosting partner. Not only do we have the lowest domain price in the industry, starting at just 11 bucks, we've got hundreds of stunning website templates to help you stand out from the crowd. You're not a techie? Not a problem. With our easy DIY site builders, you can launch your impressive website without any technical know-how. And when it comes to security and updates, don't worry, we've got you covered. Our 24-7 U.S.-based customer support is the best in the industry. Check out Pair.com today to learn more. P-A-I-R.com. Welcome to Season 5 of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we talk with enterprise and technology platform leaders about the people, processes, and platforms that make marketing and customer experience successful, scalable, and sustainable. This is what creates an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advisor and consultant for Fortune 1000 marketing and CX leaders and teams as principal and chief strategist at GK5A and best-selling author, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and Agile certified coach. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. To sign up for the Agile Brand newsletter and get the latest insights and articles on marketing technology and CX, or to purchase a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, go to gregkillstrom.com. You can also find all my books on Amazon and other retailers. And now on to the show. Today, we're going to talk about using prediction to improve the customer experience. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Andy Rossmeisel, CEO and co-founder of Faraday. Andy, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, thanks, Greg. Uh, thanks so much for uh, having me on the show. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this this with you. So a uh, great, great topic. Looking forward to diving in. But yeah. first, um, why don't we start by giving you giving a little background on yourself and, and what led you to co-found Faraday? Yeah, totally. Thanks. You know, I've been a, a lifelong programmer and designer and after college got involved in in some software companies and ultimately just found 10 years ago that there was an opportunity to um, start offering this new kind of technology that hadn't quite really broken into the brand space to um, to sort of the leading brands of the time. And Actually, it's, it's interesting. We started Faraday working exclusively with uh, with solar companies, um, hmm. which was a, a passion of mine and my co-founders 10 hmm. years ago. And we still do a little work in solar these days, but uh, definitely broadened out from there. But uh, yeah, that was that was how we got started. Wonderful. Well, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit more about what Faraday does. So Understanding customers through data collection has always been challenging, but it's increasingly difficult due to increased privacy restrictions, right. deprecation of third-party data or third-party cookies, mobile device IDs, all of that stuff. That um, that's a whole that's a topic of all other show. But first, you know, what's wrong with only looking at what a customer or even a potential customer has done in the past and providing the best possible experience? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, first off, it's important to, I think, to understand that we're always going to be basing predictions off of what's happened in the past. Sure. So we, we extrapolate from there, but um, really the only way that predictive technologies can work is by carefully assessing history and trying to use a col collision of a whole bunch of different kinds of data to uncover patterns. And that's both the power, it's also the risk, because as we know, the world is always changing and 
history is not always the best guide, but that is, you know, number one where we have to start. Yeah, yeah. So on Faraday's website, uh, the platform is described as a prediction infrastructure for commerce. Yeah. Can you describe what this means and, and why prediction can be such a powerful tool? Yeah, exactly. You know, we believe here at Faraday, and it's been really the spirit of the company since we started it, that prediction should be embedded in brands' workflows really throughout the organization. You know, AI started with these you know, way back with Watson and things, you know, it's very isolated systems and culturally within organizations, you know, as recently as several years ago, it was very typical for a data science team to be a siloed group, maybe underneath the CTO or analytics or something like that. And our vision here at Faraday is if we do our job right, and I think if the culture continues to progress the way it has, we won't need the term data scientist anymore. You know, the, mm. a, a joke I make a lot is we don't call ourselves word processors, even though we always <laughs> we all right. use word processors right in our jobs. And at a certain point, that became not a thing that you had to specialize in. And our view is that, you know, AI, if, if you think about it as a practical tool, just like a word processor, it's, you know, it's something that everybody should be able to use to to do their job better. Yeah, yeah. So I think most of the people listening to this show are at least somewhat aware of the the move by Apple, Microsoft, and and eventually Google to deprecate third party cookies. So yeah, you know all the all the data privacy. You know some some people are def well aware of it. Some people at least have a, a a vague understanding that it's gonna be harder to rely on third party data and enrichment and all that kind of stuff. Over the over the coming years, and and in some cases, are it already is more difficult. Um, what are the opportunities in this? Let's just call it post cookie world to understand customers better and and provide them a better experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm sure many of your listeners know this, but cookies were invented in in 1995 for an e-commerce platform. So they've always been commercial. There was no you know, yeah. kind of storied uh, scientific purpose behind them, like many technologies in the early days of the web. Uh, but it, it really took less than a year for privacy experts at the time to start pointing out the issues. And, you know, at our company, Faraday, we've always had a policy against identifying customers with cookies. Our rule of thumb that we use here, which others may find useful, is we only identify people with identifiers they regularly share and can recite from memory. So address, phone, email, unless Greg, you happen to know your tracking cookies by heart, which <laughs> most, most people don't when I can't say that I do <laughs> pose the question. You know, we all keep our address on the outside of our home, right? These are identifiers we know we have, we're willing to share. And, you know, we think that those are legitimate identifiers. We've been feeling this way for 10 years. And I'm very happy, honestly, that society's catching up. And, and even, you know, parts of big tech have have really gotten on board and you know, some people are looking for ways to get around it, loopholes, things like that. But, you know, honestly, we're seeing a lot of good actors out there right now. And, you know, it was a brief, brief reign of the cookie. But, um, you know, we've always felt like they're, frankly, fairly creepy and should should probably go away. You know, I think yeah. the, the, th the thing that marketers are going to have to kind of get comfortable with is that you're going to have to wait for people to identify themselves before you can identify them yourself, which is a, kind of a mouthful. But people are going to need to share identifiers and uh, we're not going to be able to just assign them um, without them knowing. And, you know, it sounds kind of obvious when you say it like that, but 
I think maybe that's good evidence. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, and, and with every challenge, I mean, you know, definitely there was, there was infrastructure set up around third party information and, and it, it kind of worked, but I, I think most would actually admit that while it kind of worked, it was very inefficient in the way that it worked and, and often not completely accurate. And so, you know, how does, how does prediction and, and this, the, the way that you're approaching things, how does, how does companies and brands use this as a competitive advantage? Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, cookies had a brief reign and they certainly were popular, but they definitely gave us some bad habits. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about personalization, it means a lot of different things, to a lot of different people, but, you know, clearly I think for most in the space, cookies are at the heart of that. And I honestly have a hard time even calling it personalization. To, to me, it feels more like regurgitation, right? Mm -hmm. You you know, yeah. you, you you Google one thing and now you're stuck with ads on that thing for the rest of your life, it sometimes feels like on all your devices, right. every single channel. And and you just Googled it one one time because it was like a crossword clue you were looking up or something. You know, it's it's yeah. not you have no deep interest in whatever this thing is that you're searching. You know, I think at the end of the day, what you search for does not define you as a person. And to do personalization right, I mean, the word person is in there, right? You have to know about, you have to care about the person. And there are some industries, you know, Greg, where people still have like a one-to-one -one way of doing personalization. If you think about like real estate, I don't know if yeah. you've ever bought or sold a house, you know, you, yeah. you know your agent for years and they know your kids and you got a new job, maybe you think, you know, time for, you know, a new house. And, you know, most brands obviously cannot operate that way. It doesn't scale. And, you know, that's why a lot of brands have marketing automation and things that, that can help them um, get ahead. You know, we at Faraday, we recommend taking a predictive approach to personalization um, to, you know, help actually connect with people in ways that are meaningful to them while still scaling. So, you know, at Faraday, we have responsibly source data on, on every U.S. adult, and we use a kind of machine learning technique called clustering to take any brand we work with customer base and automatically divide it into something like three to seven really meaningful, coherent, interesting subgroups. And we call those personas. And then because we have that same amount of data on, on everybody in the, in the, the consumer universe here, we can take any new lead that comes in, any new customer, even a, a prospect you're pursuing, and we can assign them to one of your three to seven personas. And what this means is that you can use the tools you already have, your ESP, messaging platforms, e-commerce platforms, to come up with very subtle content variations, you know, subject lines, photos, offers, messaging um, that align loosely, you know, this doesn't have to be like a science, but it's more of an art. It, they align to each of these personas we've identified. And that, you know, it's not as good as the real estate agent who knows your life story, but it's a hell of a lot better than just regurgitating what you Googled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so from the, the, I think, I think that's a good way of understanding it from the, from the brand perspective. Can you, what does that feel like from the customer perspective you know what's what are what are some of the advantages of prediction and you know maybe if you could give an example you know we're all very used to you know getting emails from brands these days and um, you know some of the best brands do a decent job of of personalizing that content you know maybe they've 
noticed that I abandoned my cart or maybe because I came in on a certain channel or something like that, they're able yeah. to take my, you know, my behavior that I've exhibited with the brand as part of our relationship and leverage that to attempt to customize their, their outreach to me. And I think that that is an awesome first step. And we love working with brands who have already taken that step, frankly. Um, but you know, as, as any, uh, engagement person will, will tell you that, you know, it's, it's very easy to personalize to people who have exhibited a lot of behavior. <laughs> those, right, are right. Your, those are your VIP customers, though, you know, and in some sense, those are the people who actually don't need the help. On the yeah. other hand, you've got somebody who came in, bought one thing a year and a half ago, and that's it. Or maybe they're just a lead. Maybe they've gotten fabric samples and you have no idea what, you know, furniture item they they even want to, to use those fabric samples with. So, you know, you've got leads, you've got, you know, inactive customers, how the heck are you supposed to, you know, develop a, you know, relevant engagement with that person. And really the only practical way to do that is to make predictions about them that are based on, you know, data that are, that are uh, available through a vendor like Faraday across um, entire populations. And, you know, once, once you have that and you don't need access to the raw data so we can protect privacy along the way, but it allows you to, you know, do very simple things like content variation, as I mentioned, or maybe you're adjusting promo code to be proportional to um, predicted LTV that hasn't been realized. Or, you know, maybe you are um, really just trying to focus on people who are actually likely to convert. The predictions really help focus your attention. Before we continue, I'd like to introduce you to a sponsor of the show, Basecamp. Throughout my career, whether it was at my own agency or now as a consultant, Basecamp is what we rely on to help keep projects on track, on schedule, and on budget. It takes a straightforward approach to project management. It streamlines workflow management and definitely keeps the team in the loop and on top of ongoing updates, which all are major components in a smooth running operation. No matter if it's a simple campaign or a multi-million dollar project, Basecamp has been a key ingredient in the recipe for a successful project and business. If you're struggling with projects, sign up for Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you all their features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com Agile, that's Basecamp.com A-G-I-L-E, and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get back to the show. So switching gears a little bit here, you know, we've, we've focused a lot on the, let's call it the, the positive side of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning or, or ML so far, but yeah, you know, there's, there's always this possibility of bias that can be introduced into some of the machine learning, which, you know, can certainly be detrimental for, for those familiar uh, or for those less familiar, can you kind of describe what this bias is and, and maybe provide an example? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Happy to. This is um, this is what I really like talking about most. So let's get into it. You know, yeah. I, first off, I think it's important to understand. And I, I, you know, Greg, I know you know this, but some of your listeners may not. AI is uh, really profoundly dumb. Um, it's it's <laughs> capable of of great things, um, but to be perfectly honest, only through relentless trial and error. Right. It's something that people forget. 
I even forget it sometimes. You know, you watch sci-fi movies or something and you you kind of disconnect from the reality that this is just the world's simplest algorithm run millions of times very quickly. Yeah. You know, for better or worse, AI has become everywhere these days. Some of your listeners may have used really low-level tools like Scikit-Learn or TensorFlow. There's like these libraries that have made it very easy for developers who happen to not to have any formal statistics experience, you know, to apply these algorithms to whatever data they want to build what, you know, people call predictive models. In in many cases, there's really no guarantee that they're actually predictive of anything. But then you can take those models that you've built, you following steps in a tutorial, and you can apply them to any other data set to make predictions. And again, we call them predictions, but um, it's very likely and common. In fact, I would say most of the time these days, uh, they're not really predictions. They just look like predictions. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this convergence you know, between relative technical immaturity and very recent broad accessibility that puts us at a, at a crossroads as a society. So one way down the crossroads, you know, things go the right way, people do the right thing. AI is is a genuine, you know, boon to to our well-being and and to brands' performance to be, you know, more concrete about it. The other way, uh, and this this is the way that I you know think about is is it's kind of a nightmarish, nightmarish dystopia, you know. <laughs> and we, we can talk more about that. I think the biggest issue you know right now is that AI and marketing and personalization is is very diffuse. There's a lot of power. You know, we're seeing this explosion of startups and you know companies that have no background in AI are adding AI features to their to their products. Things that aren't AI are being called AI, um, yeah. and you know th- it makes sense. AI is the obvious winner for personalization. It can score leads better than any technique I know of. You can assemble audiences with AI. You can predict LTV. You can warn about churn. It's remarkable the things that AI can do, and everybody I think has seemed to grasp the reality of that. But we worry about the diffusion because all these people building all these really fun, interesting tools some of them are not actually predictive because people are not doing them right. And then even worse, and to get to your question here, some of them probably have very serious fairness issues. Um, so, you know, the, the metaphor I like to use is, you know, what if every brand tried to build their own payment stack from scratch instead right. of using Stripe? You know, it'd be, it'd be chaos. And, and it's, it's crazy to think about, but that's actually the kind of world we're in right now with, with AI. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, you asked it for some examples about bias and, you know, bias is one of the one of the problems that can emerge with naively applied AI techniques. Um, you know, it comes back to AI being very dumb. You know, there's a lots of different kinds of data involved, but the, the key piece of data that these algorithms need is something called labels. These are, you know, indications on historical data that these these data are representative of certain things having happened in the past. And these algorithms, all they have to go off is, is the past, is history. And the problem is that history is deeply biased for, for many reasons, including, as we know, large groups of people have faced and continue to face systematic discrimination for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, AI is amazing, but it's just frankly not smart enough to recognize that some of the patterns it's finding are because of injustice. It doesn't even know what justice or injustice is, right? So yeah. 
if you are just kind of going out there and throwing algorithms at data sets, AI is going to notice these patterns and it's going to blithely sort of apply them and happily use them. And it's just going to perpetuate all of these biases out forever into the future because it's going to happen again. And then the next AI tool that was incorrectly implemented is going to notice that they've continued to happen and it's going to continue to build and build and build. It's not because AI is malicious or evil. It's because it's frankly very dumb. Um, so, you know, we're worried about diffuse AI here, um, building models, making predictions. It's, that's easy. And it's all the other stuff that's hard. And it's not that people are, are malicious or evil. It's just that they're very busy. And so they don't do it right. Yeah. Yeah. So how does, how does a business mitigate against this bias? What are, what are some things they can do? You know, one, I think important thing to note is that not, you know, not all bias is bad. So I, I don't have my heart set on, on being bias free. There's some brands, um, you know, that have products that, you know, are maybe more tuned to women or to younger people. And that's, you know, it's not necessarily bad then for their outreach to be biased in that way. And so we don't have to eliminate all bias, but yeah. For me, it's more about bias being a conscious part of the conversation, right? So knowing it's there, being thoughtful about it, you know, I ideally want to see a brand looking at an audience that they've, say, built with AI and being able to clearly see if it's biased, and many audiences are, but knowing then how it's biased, right? And maybe that bias is not surprising. Maybe it's good. Maybe it aligns to the product characteristics that are being sold. But if you're surprised by something there and it doesn't make sense, the good news is that people who have been working in the space for a long time have developed very straightforward techniques to mitigate bias. And some brands that we work with now are going a step further and they're actually not just eliminating bias um, to neutralize uh, models predictions, but actually invert that bias. So mm. maybe they recognize that the way they communicated, sold, priced, offered in the past was disadvantaging certain populations. And now they want to overrepresent those populations in their outreach so that they can build a more inclusive uh, community of customers. And, you know, that to me is, that's the, that's the next frontier, um, this sort of equity model. Um, and, there, and one of the cool, I would say, side effects of that model, if, if and when it becomes more and more popular here, is that you know there will there will be short term cost right your your brand plays really well to the audience it's played well to in the past and so it's going to take a short term cost to you know invert any bias out there but i think there's a long term investment that's being made to broaden you know the ultimate universe of customers and because this decision is being made in the faraday platform and, and elsewhere we can actually start to understand the ultimate dollar price on on fairness, and that to me is is maybe the most interesting outcome of our work here. Yeah, yeah, that that is interesting. Do you see the role of ethics growing, or maybe put a different way, do you do you see the role of ethics and bias in in AI and, and machine learning as a maybe a separate and distinct role that that's going to grow, or do you see that as it's kind of everybody's job or, you know, or maybe all of the above, but, you know, how do, how do you see this role of, of kind of ensuring that things are equitable and, and ethical and, and all these things as, as the use of AI and ML continues to grow? Yeah. You know, I would, the, um, the thing I compare it to, cause I get this question a lot is security. Yeah. So, you know, 20 years ago, 
there wasn't, certainly there were people interested in IT security, but it was not the kind of militarized uh, community that it is now. Um, you know, we're quite, quite frankly, bombarded by attacks all the time, not, not Faraday specifically, but, you know, um, everybody on the internet. And we've all had to develop a sixth sense, a little bit of skepticism. You know, we can look at an email and pretty quickly tell whether it's phishing or whether it's genuine. And, you know, for businesses working with a lot of data, it obviously goes a lot farther than, than just relying on people's intuition. We have, you know, penetration testing and we have SOC 2 audits and things like that. And part of all of those security regimes within, you know, large tech organizations is employee training. It's awareness. They do um, fire drills. Um, at Faraday, we have all kinds of security questionnaires we fill out once a month. And it's just become a deep part of our culture. Uh, and, you know, it's not uncommon. It hasn't been for a decade now for any new client we work with to send over a security form and say, fill this out, let us know what you're doing on security. And I'm really happy to report, Greg, that just over the last 12 months, um, maybe 18 months, we've started to see responsible AI questionnaires being sent to us, not quite as often as security ones, but the pace is picking up. And I think mm -hmm. that's kind of the canary out there saying, this is, this is now an institutional priority for organizations of a lot of different sizes. We're, we care about this. These organizations have policies just like they have for security around responsible AI, part of which is, is ethics. And I'm really happy about that. You know, I, I'm frankly yeah. a little surprised, but, but very pleased that the, the culture is really coming around. That's yeah, that, that's great to hear. Well, um, one last question before we wrap up and to kind of go back to the, uh, the, the first topic we were talking about, about prediction. Uh, so you're, business helps other businesses deal with predicting outcomes. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, how do you measure the success of your of your predictions? How do you know that you're you're achieving what you need to achieve? Yeah, well, I'll give you the um, I'll give you a technical answer. And then and then <laughs> what really happens. So we built into Faraday is functionality to support both holdouts and control groups. And just a quick primer on those for folks who aren't familiar. Um, a holdout is where you're considering treating a, a given group of people with some kind of intervention. So an ad or an email or something of that nature. And what you do, having assembled the list of people you want to target, is you take a certain portion of it, say 5%, and you actually don't, you don't treat that, that group. That's why it's called a holdout. You kind of hold them out. And the, the point behind that is you, you get to then run the treatment to the other 95%. And you know, hooray, a lot of people convert or click or buy or whatever the ultimate goal is. And you're very, very happy about that. But then you look at the 5% holdout and you see that that group of people converted at the same exact rate. And you realize that there's just a, a population out there that's naturally inclined to take this action. And in fact, all the money you spent on the advertising or the outreach or the event or whatever it was actually added no value. Uh, because that group of people is clearly converting at the same rate, regardless if they were treated or not. Mm -hmm. So holdouts are a way to, to determine whether or not the treatment is effective. The sibling to that is control groups, where we have functionality here. Like I said, also, anytime we're putting together a group of people who have a high propensity, for example, to, um, to take a certain action or have a very high LTV or something like that, 
we will at the client's request mix in a certain percentage, say 5% of randomly selected people from the eligible population. Um, so people who do not necessarily have high scores or, or if they do, it's just because they're randomly selected. And then you again, run the treatment and you compare the conversion or the, you know, uh, the action, um, between the, the top scores and the, the randomly selected control group. And hopefully there's a difference and, and very often there is because people frankly are quite predictable, hmm. but, um, in some cases they're not. And, and that's how you learn the, the power of the, the predictive model. So those, those two things taken together really do offer a statistically significant, interesting um, piece of feedback you can get from your activities. And we offer it. The secret I'm going to let you in on here, Greg, is that um, in the last year, I think zero of our clients have have actually used those features. And, I, you know, I, I don't blame them. It, it's, um, you know, they've got their own um, tracking. You know, one of the things that we're very lucky about here at Faraday is we're embedding predictions in existing tools, existing stacks, existing yeah. workflows. Yeah. And those, as you know, in 2022, marketing tools are instrumented, you know, top to bottom. And people have analytics platforms for their analytics platforms. And right, so right. <laughs> it's, it's quite simple for, for a brand to say, all right, well, here's a, here's a workflow where we're not using predictions and here's a workflow where we are and you can compare the, the outcomes. And frankly, it's, that's a lot better than, than us doing it because they know their business better than we do. Yeah. Well, great. Well, again, I'd like to thank Andy Rossmeisel, CEO and co-founder of Faraday for joining the show. You can learn more about Andy and Faraday by following the links in the show notes. Talk with you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkillstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. To get a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, visit my website or you can find it on Amazon or other retailers. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, They craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile. If you're in business, you probably have a website, but can your site handle your growth? How many visitors before your site slows down or crashes? What about storage and data security? From web hosting to virtual servers, Pair Networks provides the online infrastructure you need to start, grow, and flourish. When it comes to security and updates, don't worry, we've got you covered. Our 24-7 U.S.-based customer support is the best in the industry. No frustrating chatbots are sitting on hold for hours. Check out Pair.com today to learn more. That's P-A-I-R dot com.